0: Well, good morning. For those of you that I don't know, my name is Matt Morton. I am the teaching pastor at our Creekside campus normally, but I have the privilege of being over here this morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 and 2 for most of the morning. Earlier this year, I ran across a news story about a couple in Northern California that was out on their own property one day in a rural area Rural property, they were walking their dog throughout their property when they noticed that under a nearby tree, there was something peeking out of the dirt that looked kind of like a coffee can. So they went to check it out. They went to inspect and figure out what it was and they they uncovered it and they dug up an old tin looking can. Then they looked around the tree and they found seven additional cans identical to the first one. Uh, when they opened up the cans, they did not find old coffee. Uh, instead, what they found were stacks and stacks of gold coins. Gold coins that dated from the middle of the 19th century. Some of these were Civil War era gold coins, probably minted in San Francisco. Uh, Nobody knows how they ended up under that tree. Maybe a bank robbery. uh, Maybe somebody found these coins and they were their family's inheritance and so they they buried them there. Uh, Why they were there was lost to history. Whoever had a claim on them before lost to history. So they belonged now to this family. The face value of the coins was about $27,000. The present value of the coins was over 11 million dollars. So they took them, they kept a few, they sold most of them, and I assume they have now retired somewhere really, really nice. Uh, I love this kind of story. Uh, In fact, I hope it happens to me uh, one day. Uh, After I read it, I took a couple walks around my own backyard uh, and found nothing but children's toys that were scattered in the dirt. That was it. But I love these kinds of stories of remarkable treasure found in very mundane and ordinary places, right under the dirt on this ordinary land in a rural place to an ordinary couple. They find a massive treasure. And one of the reasons I love stories like that, I think, is because when we read the story of Jesus and the story of the entrance of Jesus into our world, it's parallel to this kind of story. Because what we have with Jesus is the most valuable treasure in all of the universe. Planted in a very mundane place. Among very ordinary people. In a spot that from an earthly perspective was not all that significant. We're going to talk this morning about Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem. And these are people and places we're familiar with now. But we're mostly familiar with them because they're connected to Jesus. right? If Jesus had not entered into the world, you never would have heard of Mary and Joseph. You probably wouldn't really think much of Bethlehem, although it is mentioned in the Old Testament a few times. But Bethlehem is known mostly for its connection to Jesus. Mary and Joseph are known completely for their connection to Jesus. And so what we have in the Christmas story is the entrance of the Son of God, right? Fully God, fully man, entering into an ordinary town. Into an ordinary family. Living a life that from the outside to most people for most of his life looked very ordinary and yet his life is the most important life that was ever lived. God's greatest gift, greatest treasure to us planted in the middle of a very mundane spot among ordinary people. And what I want to highlight as we look at Luke chapter 1 this morning then is, is this principle. It is that God uses ordinary people, people like Mary and Joseph, people like us in ordinary places, places like Bethlehem, Places like College Station, God uses ordinary people in ordinary places to accomplish extraordinary things. So what we see with people like Mary and Joseph, and what we see with people like the first disciples of Jesus, is that from an earthly perspective, they really weren't anything big. But what they did that ended up changing the world is they simply said, God, you have placed me in this spot at this time in history, so I'll obey you. You've put me in this little town and allowed me to have a connection to your son. So God, however you want to use me amongst my friends in this little place, use me for your kingdom. Whatever you want to do through me in this little place... Do through me for the sake of your kingdom. God uses ordinary people in ordinary places to accomplish extraordinary things. Now, I say that partly because uh, really most of us in this room, if not all of us, are basically ordinary people. I'm not saying that to insult you. If you feel extraordinary, by all means, don't take offense. All right, but when I say ordinary people, really what I mean is uh, few, if any, of us in this room would be considered celebrities on a world scale. Right, We're not the type of people that everybody knows who we are. As far as I'm aware, there are no heads of state in this room. Nobody is running a country. As far as I know, there are no Fortune 500 members in this room, although I could be wrong. And if there are, it's not most of us. Right, most of us, you'd say, you know what, I'm, I'm an ordinary person. I live in an ordinary place with an ordinary job. I've got an ordinary family. And, and I think in that ordinariness, our temptation is to say, you know, really the important stuff in the world, it doesn't happen here with people like me. The important stuff happens in Washington, D.C. or in New York City or somewhere big amongst people who run nations and corporations. Right, but as we, as we look at the word of God, in fact, what we see is that significance in God's economy really is not defined by how many people know my name when I die. It's not defined by how much money is stacked in the bank account when I die. It's not defined by any sort of authority or power I have in earthly terms. Instead, that the measure of my life is determined by my connection to Jesus Christ. And my obedience to Jesus Christ. So that what we see throughout the scripture. Is that the kingdom of God in the world. That the message of Jesus Christ. Moves forward in the world. When everyday people like you and me. Like Mary and Joseph say. Okay God you've put me here. I believe you want me here. In this family. In this town. In this job. Where you've put me today. So use me for your kingdom. And so, so the question for us as we move through Luke 1 and 2, just to kind of keep in the back of your mind, is this question. Will you and I simply say yes to whatever God has for us as we move forward in our ordinary lives? So I say, God, I will obey your word. God, I will love those around me. God, I will be faithful to the commitments that I have made before you and before my family. God, I will serve you faithfully in this job as I seek to do my best and love those around me and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Because God uses ordinary people in ordinary places to accomplish extraordinary things. Look with me as we move toward Luke chapter 1. First thing we're going to see is this. Jesus was born, first of all, to ordinary parents. I want to read from Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What we see in Luke chapter 1, and you also see this in Matthew chapter 1, Mary and Joseph really are not that extraordinary in earthly terms. Joseph, as you probably know, was a carpenter. He would have been basically a middle class type of tradesman. Not exceedingly wealthy, not exceedingly poor. Right? So he had uh, food and clothes and shelter. But we know that they were poor enough that actually when Jesus was born, the offering they brought to the temple was about the poorest offering you could bring. It was two turtle doves that they brought to sacrifice upon the birth of Jesus. So they're not wealthy. They're not starving. They're kind of in the middle. Uh, Mary, we don't really know anything about Mary apart from her connection to Jesus and the fact that she came from the line of King David. She was descended from King David. Other than that, we don't know anything about them. They go to Bethlehem and we'll talk about that in a bit because they're descended from David. But remember, this is, uh, you know, a thousand years after King David's reign. There were tons of descendants of David. So so they're not necessarily anything extraordinary. And yet here comes the angel Gabriel to talk to Mary to tell her that she's going to have this baby. Now, to give you background a little bit, the angel Gabriel, you see him once in the Old Testament, mentioned by name. It's in the book of Daniel. The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel after Daniel had a vision about what God was going to do for the rest of history. So Daniel has this vision where he learns, okay, starting now, here is the program that God is going to implement until the very end when the kingdom of the Messiah comes. Daniel has this vision and Gabriel the angel comes and says, okay, Daniel, here's what it means, All right, Dan- Gabriel is an archangel who comes from the presence of God and he describes God's plan for his kingdom to Daniel. That's the same Gabriel, all right? So this is an important angel. This is about as important an angel as you can have. And in fact, there is some continuity here between Daniel and Daniel and the book of Luke. When Gabriel comes now and announces, hey, the Messiah has come, there's some continuity between that message of the Messiah he gave to Daniel and the message of the Messiah he gives to Mary. Important angel. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, if you were at Creekside last week, I mentioned this, but let me reiterate. When Gabriel appeared to Zachariah, of Elizabeth, the father of John the Baptist, Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and he said, hey, you guys are going to have a baby, even though your wife is old. And Zechariah goes, hey, that seems unlikely. My wife is old, she's barren. How do I know that you're telling the truth? And Gabriel's response, I love it, he goes, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. What more do you need? I came all the way from up there to here. This is an important angel. So he says, Zachariah, because you didn't believe me until the day that the baby's born, you won't be able to talk. And, and then the next time we see him here is in Luke chapter 2. This unbelievably important angel comes to this woman in this tiny town that nobody has ever heard of. And he says, greetings, favored one. God has blessed you. And Mary's looking around and going, Me? says, she's really confused. What kind of greeting is this? And he goes on and he says, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. That there's, there's one coming from your womb who will rule over the kingdom of David. This is a remarkable moment where this unbelievably important dignitary comes to somebody that nobody's ever heard of. It was interesting, a couple of weeks ago, after the passing of George H.W. Bush, I got onto Facebook and I learned that I'm the only person in the country who never met him. All my Facebook friends posted their pictures of meeting President Bush. And I thought, man, how did I miss it? Everybody knew him but me. Right? But, I, but I will say I almost had that opportunity once when I was in college. I had a friend who worked uh, over at the, the Bush Library. And part of his job was uh, when the former president would come into town, he was kind of the guy they assigned to sort of greet him when he came into town and you know, carry the bags, make sure he got where he went, and kind of help out with administrative tasks and, and all of that. And so uh, we were talking to him one day and we said, Hey, uh, we have an idea. We have an idea. So every uh, Monday in our apartment, we uh, make a whole bunch of macaroni and cheese. And uh, we invite a bunch of friends over. Would you invite President Bush to come to our macaroni and cheese night? Right? And he kind of laughed nervously and he said, yeah, ha ha. He goes, you know, though, uh, he is the kind of guy that if I invited him, maybe he would come. And we said, well, then you have to do it. You have to. I mean, what a moment would that be if we could get the former president of the United States to come to our two bedroom apartment and eat macaroni and cheese with us. But he never He never asked him uh, because I think he he was afraid of losing his job, which he liked more than he liked us, I guess, right? And I'm only still a little bit angry about that. And all of that came up again when all of you started posting your pictures, by the way, because I never got to meet him. But man, what a moment that would be, right? Somebody that important comes to my little apartment. That's... Not as big as what's going on here in Luke chapter 2. The archangel of God, who stands in the presence of God, comes to this little bitty town. To this ordinary woman. And he says, Mary, you're, you're, you're highly favored. And she's highly favored, not because she is special, but because the baby you're about to have, Mary, that baby is the Messiah. Mary is so ordinary, in fact, that her response is deeply ordinary. What's the first thing that Mary says after this this massive announcement that the king of heaven is coming to live with her? She says what? How is that going to happen? I'm a virgin. And I've often thought, you know, did Mary ever read this later and kind of think, man, I wish I could have that moment back. I wish I'd said something profound. But Mary's concern is very ordinary. Just as was Joseph's concern when he hears about the baby that is now growing in the womb of his betrothed. Joseph thinks, I will divorce her quietly. I don't want to shame her, but he feels hurt and angry that she is pregnant. And that's his response. These are ordinary people. In an ordinary place. And yet, and yet God says I want to I work through them. And perhaps the most powerful moment here in Luke chapter 1. Is that after the angel explains it to her. The, 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 the most high will overshadow you. And you're going to have this child who will reign over the throne of his father, David. And he explains it. And Mary's response is just beautiful. She says, you know what? I'm the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me as he pleases. Mary says, wherever you've placed me, God, even though this is a situation she doesn't understand, a situation that probably scares her to death. She says, I'm here now. And this is what you've asked me to do. Joseph responds in in much the same way after the angel says to him, says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child within her is of the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph moves forward to marry his betrothed. Nothing is particularly extraordinary about these two people. But both of them say, God, you've placed us in this spot. This is what you've asked us to do, to move forward in faith, in keeping with the plan you've laid out. And so, God, we'll go wherever you want us to go. We'll do whatever you want us to do. The bond slaves of the Lord. And so Jesus is born to these ordinary parents who simply say, God, I'll be faithful where you've put me. And so as I read that passage, again, the question that comes to my mind is, you know, I I am, I'm an ordinary person. Odds are you're an ordinary person. But the question is, will we be faithful where God has placed us? Even if we don't understand. Even if we'd rather be somewhere else. Even if we'd rather be more important. We say, God, I'll I'll, I'll trust you. Where you've placed me. And proclaim and serve you where you've placed me in what you've called me to do. Jesus is born to ordinary parents Secondly, Jesus is born in a very ordinary place, in an ordinary town. Look with me at Luke chapter 2 for just a moment. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So here's what's probably going on in Luke chapter two. Is uh, remember the the nation of Israel is under Roman rule at this point. So Caesar Augustus, the emperor, he says, I want to know how many people are in my empire and where they are from, so that why he can he can more accurately tax everybody. He wants to know how much money should I be taking from each region of my empire. Now, now you may remember from the Old Testament. That if you were a Jew, you had ancestral property, right? That was passed down from father to son to grandson. And that ancestral property, ultimately, it always would stay in the family. So they go back to their hometown, partly because that's where the property is. There was probably a property tax element to Caesar Augustus's census, right? So in order to tax the people and the property, he says, I'm going to count the people. I'm going to count your property up, and then we'll figure out how much you owe, right? So everybody has to go back to their ancestral hometown. Now, it tells us for Mary and Joseph, that is Bethlehem, calls it the city of David, now, I want to say that is a very grand title for a very small place. It's known as the city of David, of course, because David was, was from there. David grew up there, but it's not really a big city. Let me show you really quickly sort of where Bethlehem is. And I apologize for how small this is, but I'll, I'll show you on this map with, with this. So Bethlehem is right over here in Judea. And here's Jerusalem right over here. Bethlehem's about maybe five to six miles away from Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem was pretty big, maybe as many as 100,000 people in the first century, which was a big city back then. Bethlehem is very small, maybe about 300 people at the time of Jesus' birth, right? This is why people wonder, you know, it says that Herod slaughtered all of the baby boys under two that were in Bethlehem, and uh, people go, well, why does nobody else mention that in history except for in the Bible, right? Here's why, because there were probably like seven babies that old in Bethlehem. Not that it's not a tragedy, but it's not a massive historical event, Bethlehem is a very small community. So it's the kind of place that you're going to maybe walk through or ride through on your way to the big city. Think about some of the towns that you might pass on the highway between here and Dallas. So somebody says, I'm not even going to say any town because I don't want to insult anybody here. But somebody says, I'm from X town. And you go, yeah, yeah, I've driven through there. On my way to Dallas. And they'll say, yeah, that's how everybody knows us. We're on the highway. We have that, you know, cookie place or whatever it may be. Uh, My wife is from Bedford, Texas, which is larger now than it was when she was growing up. But if you ask her where she's from, she will probably say it like this. I am from Bedford. It's near Fort Worth. Right? And so I've often thought they should just change the name of it. Bedford. It's near Fort Worth. It is defined by its proximity to a larger place. That's kind of the way Bethlehem was. Although David grew up in Bethlehem... He reigned in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the big place. Bethlehem was the little town. It was known primarily for being the hometown of David. We've all also probably gone to towns where they're known for one person, right? So you drive into this little town and there's a billboard that says home of so-and-so, right? And it'll be some football star from the 1970s or some celebrity or singer or political star or whatever it may be. They're known for that person. Years ago, I was driving through Oklahoma and I drove through Henrietta, Oklahoma, just a little bit east of Oklahoma City, south of Tulsa. Some of you know who came from Henrietta. Anybody know? You can shout it out. Not Garth Brooks, but, well, maybe, I don't know, Troy Aikman. At the time, it was Troy Aikman, the legendary quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, right? So you drive in, and and if you stop anywhere, you will learn that Troy Aikman is from there. I stopped at McDonald's on the highway, and this McDonald's had more Troy Aikman memorabilia than most museums. There were signed footballs and, and jerseys and all kinds of stuff. You knew this was the place that that person came from. Right. That's how Bethlehem is. Bethlehem, the city of David. We're little, but somebody important came from us. That's how they're remembered. Bethlehem is the city of David, the king. Right. One of uh, my favorite parts of uh, the David story. When David is anointed, you remember Samuel, the prophet, Comes to Bethlehem because God says you're going to find a new king in Bethlehem. He'll be one of the seven sons of Jesse. So here comes Samuel and he walks into Bethlehem. And it says the elders of Bethlehem were afraid when they saw Samuel coming. They start trembling. You know why they're afraid? Because nobody that important ever comes to Bethlehem. And if somebody that powerful and authoritative comes to their city, they go, what's wrong? What did we do? And it's a prophet who has, you know, prophets have a tendency to tell you what you're doing wrong. And then you die, right? And so so you can see like nobody's ever really come here like that before. This is a little place. Why is he here? That's the kind of place it is. Now, Bethlehem is mentioned, let me, let me say this, it's mentioned in a couple of other spots, uh, most notably in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. You may remember that the book of Ruth, is, uh, Bethlehem is, is the setting for most of the book. And I think Ruth and Boaz kind of highlight how God often operates when we're talking about ordinary people in ordinary places. Right? Remember, Ruth was not even an Israelite. She was from Moab. She had married an Israelite who died, and so she came back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. And she moves back to Bethlehem, and eventually she marries Boaz, who Boaz was a big deal at the time in Bethlehem, right? But that's like being the mayor of like Podunk, Iowa. He's important in Bethlehem, but he's probably not that important in a broad sense throughout the nation of Israel. So you have two basically Ordinary people who get married in this very little place. And the, real, the, the big reveal at the end of the book of Ruth is it says Ruth and Boaz get married and they have a son. That son's name is Obed. Obed has a son. That son's name is Jesse. Jesse has a son. That son's name is David. So as you're reading it and you know the history of Israel, you go, that's why this story is so significant. It's not because Ruth and Boaz were a great big deal. It's because David is. Bethlehem is known for its connection to David. Today, we know it for its connection to Jesus. It's such a small place, in fact, that when, when Mary and Joseph come into Bethlehem, you get the, the picture that there's just not enough room in this little town for all the descendants of David, right? Town of 300 people. Remember, David had many, many wives And many, many children who now have many, 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 many descendants. And so Bethlehem at the census is very much like College Station on game weekend. Right? You cannot move. There's nowhere to stay. And when it says there's no room for them in the inn, I want you to think about not like a Motel 6... Okay, but instead, what you would have was a family home. So that they, they would go to a family member's house that would probably have two stories. The family would live on the bottom floor, a floor that was divided between their living quarters and the animal's uh, shelter. But up above, there would be an upper room. So you think about when the disciples go to the upper room... They go up to this guest room that's up above. If you had uncles and aunts and nephews and nieces coming in, you would send them upstairs. You say, you guys can stay up there. Well, what had happened was so many uncles and aunts and cousins and long lost relatives had shown up to go to this place that they're just shoulder to shoulder upstairs. By the time Mary and Joseph get there, there's no space. And so the owner of this home says, you know what, there's no space up there. What you can do is you can sleep down here where the animals are. And so they sleep inside where the animals are and then the baby is born and they place the baby in the feeding trough for the animals. It's not a very noble sounding birth. Jammed into a house, sleeping next to the donkeys in a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. It's not the type of place or the type of birth that you expect for a king, Micah chapter five. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. All right. If I'm if I'm Bethlehem reading this, I might be like, wait, who who are you calling little? That doesn't seem very nice. I'm important. See, Bethlehem is is only important because of its connection to Jesus, ultimately. It's a small place. And that's Micah's point. This little bitty place is going to be the source of light and the source of salvation because out of you, Bethlehem, is going to come the king, the ruler will save the nation and save the world. So Jesus is born to ordinary parents. He's born in a very ordinary town. The third point though that I want to make this morning is this. He's born in very dark times. Ordinary parents in an ordinary town in very dark times. Let me tell you just a little bit about the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. First thing is this. The nation of Israel is under oppression from the government of Rome, right? We've seen that already hinted at and that they've got to go to Bethlehem in the first place because why? The emperor says you got to do it. But, But Israel had always been under oppression for almost as long as anybody could remember, right? Before the Romans you go back and you have, you have the Greeks. And before the Greeks, you go back and you've got the Persians. You go back and you've got the Babylonians. It was just empire after empire after empire. Enslaved and conquered the nation of Israel. So they're under oppression. And they have Jewish leaders, but, but their leaders can't get along. Their religious leaders can't get along. You've got the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and, and the scribes, and they can't get along. And then there's, there's governmental leaders that... That can't get along. I want you to imagine for a moment what it must feel like to live in a place where the governmental leaders can't decide on how to fix the mess you're in. I just, just think about that. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine what it would be like to have governmental leaders always arguing and fighting with one another. And ultimately you sit there and you go, you don't have any idea what you're doing. Right? Just hypothetically. That's the way that Israel was. Herod, their their so called Jewish king, he wasn't actually even Jewish at all. He was Hasmonean. Hasmonean. He was evil and bloodthirsty. He had a tendency to kill members of his own family. He was a bad guy. They were taxed at a rate of 30 to 40 percent of their money. They were poor. They were angry. They were oppressed. They were desperate. So if you had asked an Israelite in the first century, do you need to be saved? They would say, oh yeah, you better believe it. Let me list the stuff I need to be saved from, from the Romans, from poverty, from the government, from Herod. So many things I need to be saved from. And if you'd said, do you think that salvation will come from a baby born in Bethlehem who grows up in the the small town of Nazareth? They'd say, what are you talking about? Our Savior will be a king. He'll be mighty. He'll reign on a throne. And the nations will bow at his feet. That's why when uh, one of Jesus' first disciples, Nathanael, First, hears about Jesus and he learns he's from Nazareth. He goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's that kind of place. If you would ask them, do you need to be saved? They'd say, yeah. If you'd ask them, "Is, is Jesus the one that will save you? They'd say, I don't see it. I don't see it. Not somebody like that. All right, but but, but what, what we see as we, as we move throughout the story of Christ's life is, is that Jesus comes the first time and, and he doesn't destroy the Romans. He doesn't accomplish any of these large governmental objectives that they were expecting. And by the way, not expecting wrongly. These things are promised in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel that they will have a king who will be mighty and rule over Israel and rule over the nations. But the first time Jesus comes, he says, before that it happens, you got to be saved from the darkness that's in here in your heart. Before you can be saved from the darkness that you see out there. Isaiah chapter 9, it says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So that in this this little town, in a nation mired in darkness, in a world that that was desperate for salvation, God, through Jesus Christ, shines a light on Bethlehem. And the Savior of the world comes from Bethlehem. What does Isaiah 9 say? Just a, a few verses below this. The child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. A baby is coming to bring us peace. Peace. And ultimately to bring us the salvation that, that we really, really need. From the sin that separates us from God. So that, that baby born in that little town to these ordinary parents, he, he grew up and he lived a life that perfectly reflected the character of God. He lived a life we could not and were incapable of living because we're sinners, right? So we, we've turned away from God. And we earned death and we earned hell. We earned an eternal separation from God. And so God shone a light into Bethlehem. Jesus was born and lived what to many people appeared to be an ordinary life for most of the time. Yes, he performed some miracles, but, but most of his life he taught. He was a carpenter. He walked through normal streets. He had a normal family. He had friends. But he lived a life that perfectly reflected his father. And then he died in our place. We deserved death, but he took our death. And then he rose again. So that the first time Jesus came, he came to provide salvation from the darkness of sin. The next time Jesus comes, the light of Jesus Christ will conquer the nations and he'll reign on the throne of his father David forever and ever and ever over Jerusalem and over all the nations. John chapter 1, in describing the entrance of Jesus into our world, you remember it says, the light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. You say, wait, but Jesus died. Ah, but yeah, he rose. And he's coming back. So that in in his description in the book of Revelation, in John's description of the kingdom of God that ultimately comes at the end of everything, John tells us, in fact, that Jesus' light will shine so brightly we won't even need the sun in the sky. We will walk around by the light of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes to save, to draw us close to God again. If you're you're in the room this morning, it may be you came with a family member, you came with a friend. It may be that that you've been here for a while and and yet in your heart you say, you know what, I don't know that I have eternal life. I don't know that I know God through Jesus Christ. The message of Christmas then that you, you, you need to hear this morning is that God sent his son to an ordinary place among ordinary people. To provide salvation. That you can know God and know that you can spend eternity with him. If you trust in what Jesus did. That is he died in your place and in my place. He took my death and your death on himself. He was punished for us. And then he rose again. And he defeated death. And he defeated sin. And all who trust in Jesus Christ can now have confidence that one day you will be a part of his kingdom when he returns. When the light of Jesus Christ will drown out all of the darkness. If you know Jesus Christ, then this morning, the questions that I want to ask this morning come back to what we talked about at the beginning. Will you say, even though I am an ordinary person, I have an ordinary job, I have an ordinary family, I I live in a a pretty medium-sized place. Will you say, God, I I will say yes to what you have for my life because I recognize that the plan of God in the world, it moves forward powerfully. to people who will say, God, wherever you have put me, I, I will love God. I will love my neighbor. I will tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll be faithful to where you've put me. So two thoughts then as we, as we wrap up. Will we just simply say yes to whatever God's plans are? Right, Maybe that at the moment you're in, in the midst of circumstances that you, 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 know, you say, God, if there's, if there's a way that this could be different, that my life could be different, I would prefer that. I would rather not be right here. Will you say, but, but while I'm here, God, I'll, I'll say yes, I'll obey you. I'll be faithful to trust you. And to follow you in, in this moment where you have me. Right? Because as long as we are here in this place, before the return of Jesus to the world. Our circumstances in our lives will not ever be ideal. If you feel that your life is ideal, just wait a minute. And something will change. So if we're waiting for all of the circumstances to line up properly, much like the Jews in the first century, and we say, once everything lines up, then I'll trust you. Once you make me more popular, more powerful. You put more in my bank account. You elevate me. Then I'll do what you want me to do. The message that we see in the life of Mary and Joseph and those who follow Jesus is, no, God says right now, right here, through ordinary people, in an ordinary place, God can do extraordinary things. The mission of God moves forward in the world through men and women like you and me. Will we say yes to God's plans and then say, God, I will use my ordinary life to serve our extraordinary Savior? Will I trust that in the final analysis, when my life is evaluated, it will not be evaluated based on how much is left in the bank account, how many people know my name, how many people say how high when I say jump. That's not how my life will be evaluated. But instead it will be evaluated by my connection to Jesus. Do I know him? And then by my obedience and faithfulness to Jesus Christ, will I trust him and follow him wherever he places me until the day I go to see him or the day he returns and the light of Jesus Christ drowns out the darkness forever? Will I say yes where I am and say, God, I believe you can use even somebody like me to have an impact for your kingdom? Would you pray with me? Father, we're, we're grateful. We're deeply grateful that in our darkness, you shone the light of Jesus. Father, we're grateful that you came to a place that really by all earthly appearances is deeply ordinary, very small, unnoticed to people that we really would not have heard about if they weren't connected to your son. I pray we'd remember that. That the eternal significance of our lives is found in our connection to Jesus Christ. I pray we would live that way. Father, I pray through the power of your spirit, you would give us the strength to say, yes, I'm the bond slave of the Lord. And so, whatever you please, according to your word, let it be done. Let us step by step move forward in the world to honor you, to obey you, to love those around us with the love of Jesus, and to speak the good news of the life of Jesus Christ into a darkened world. Father, we thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.